This is a Founding Media Podcast, produced at Austin Community College District. Welcome back to Science of the Mall, y'all. I'm your co-host, Dan Dillard. And this is part two of our conversation with Dr. Rodney Rohde and Mauricio Telez. Nancy and I kick off the conversation by discussing how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the field of clinical laboratory science. And Mauricio shares what it's like to be a student in the CLS program at Texas State following his internship experience at ABI. Mauricio and Dr. Rohde illustrate the importance of bringing your unique skills and personality traits into your profession and share some fun stories about how Mauricio was able to do just that. We also talk about how ABI set Mauricio up for success in his current job, and he shares more details about a day in the life as a clinical laboratory scientist. They share some valuable advice for students interested in science who are wondering how they can turn their passion into a career. So without further ado, let's dive right in. The question along the same lines was uh, kind of using the pandemic to illustrate a career path, uh, especially since COVID, since since there's been so many changes since COVID. So uh, can either of you talk about the, the how COVID has impacted uh, uh, the career path uh, for CLS? Wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Let me let me give you the kind of the 10,000 foot view that yeah. I, I'm concerned about, actually. One of it. As an educator, as a program director and chair, uh, you know, right when it happened, the biggest impact right away was our clinicals kind of fell apart. So we we are required to have our students do these clinicals that I mentioned to you in their last six months. Well, it happened in March of 2020 uh, that all of a sudden we had to figure out we had to scramble. Hospitals were like, no, we can't take any more students. You know, and it's already hard enough to get these clinical placements. So that was a big issue. Now things have kind of started coming back around because they need us. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we just didn't know anything about the virus at first. And so we were being very careful. And so we had to kind of backpedal. We had to start doing some in-house training. Um, it, it got and this was nationally, you know, so it was it was a big worry. But but thank goodness our hospital uh, affiliates and others helped us through that. Uh, they knew that that class that graduated in August of 20 uh, might need a little more onboarding time and orientation. And so mm-hmm. and they needed them. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So it worked out and now we're kind of back at it. But that was a critical worry uh, at the beginning was just that that impact on on the education process. Now, what's happened is that um, we're in such demand due to a number of things, including people getting a little burnt out and, and stressed over the amount of work our professionals are doing yeah. that that's a concern. And so, uh, and, and I could, again, this could get into a little bit of the weeds here, but one of the issues is that it's a double-edged sword. So it's, the pandemic has absolutely shown a light mm-hmm. of visibility on our profession and professionals. Um, but it's added that stress due to the pandemic and the right. burnout and things like that. And so even when hospitals know that we need more students, more majors, um, they don't have enough people in the trenches to help us clinically train them. So it's it's this horrible double edged sword that I, I just mentioned to you, we get 40 to 50 applications and I can only take 20. Wow. I'm turning away pretty good students every year. Wow. Fortunately, Texas has multiple programs they can apply to, but they're in the same boat. They don't have the the clinical sites to train them. So if you can kind of understand that 
Yeah, um, it's a bold. Name. It's like really crazy, right? The people in the trenches need help, and yet they really can't take three students to train to get help, and it just becomes this vicious cycle. So that's a that's a creature that's been problematic. Uh, but from the standpoint of our degree and the foundation it builds, I'm excited because not just the hospital, but R&D, research and development, our, our students can apply for vaccinology types of jobs, the new mRNA technology that's out there, therapeutics, you know, clinical trials. I mean, our guys can really go in any number of directions. Um, and of course, we want the core to stay in the healthcare area because we need them. But, but there are master's degrees. I have specialist credentials in micro and virology. There's a brand new doctorate in clinical lab science now. There's three programs at Rutgers uh, Kansas Medical Center and right here at UTMB Galveston in Texas. And we're cranking out DCLSs now that work, work at the level of patient care and physicians to kind of help them understand and interpret tests. So we have a, we have a career path. Yeah. All the way to the doctorate level now, Mauricio. I'm curious from your perspective because you so we from what I've gathered about CLS, difficult to get into, rigorous, lots of career opportunities, and some 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 nice guarantees if, as you've mentioned. Uh, I'm curious from the student's perspective. You went through through the you survived. You survived the CLS program. Can you just talk a little bit more about how what your what that path was like for you? Yeah, going through the actual program itself, um, I think especially in the age of COVID, like halfway through it, kind of like as a nice like spicy factor, um, I think it was really challenging. I mean, I think that students like already know the gist of it. You know, like online learning is definitely not ideal for half of my spring semester in my junior year. That just had to be the case. Um, so there were a lot of like really complicated, really dense topic like coagulation and hematology right. that were thought like online. And although we did our best to try and keep up with it, like we didn't get as solid of a foundation in certain topics as we did elsewhere in like, you know, in-person learning. That's a whole other conversation, right? But um, because our program was so small, um, and because uh, we could split up students into different groups for like labs and stuff, we were able to resume in-person learning more quickly than elsewhere in the university. Right. Um, and I think that definitely helped a lot. It didn't get rid of like, just like, for example, like getting used to never seeing my classmates' faces, <laughs> right? Yeah. But I mean, other than that, in school, I think that the program did a really, really amazing job at responding to COVID quickly and making the accommodations that were necessary, like also very quickly. I don't you think also, that my learning was, oh, I'm sorry. And no, go ahead. You finished that thought and I had a yeah, question. I don't feel like my learning ended up being too stunted at all. I feel like our professors were able to like recoup for whatever content might have been glossed over a little bit. Um, and thankfully, my class uh, didn't get to clinical placements until about a year after COVID started. So by then, our professors did a lot of heavy work in trying to make sure that we would get clinical placements. Um, so because of that, I think our class was able to, you know, grind through COVID, but still be able to graduate with a lot of the skills that we needed to be like competent other jobs without having extra training. Yeah, I would you, agree. You, 
You mentioned uh, in our previous conversation some unique opportunities that or experiences that you were able to have uh, through the program uh, to use all your skills, such as uh, translating testing kits from the Spanish program. And I just thought that was a fun story. I would like to, to, to have you uh, retell us for the audience. Yeah, of course. Oh my God, I'm happy to. So I was approached because one of my professors was doing kind of like a research project on Chagas disease. Uh, Chagas disease is caused by a blood parasite, usually found in uh, Central America, but it's kind of having an increasing uh, and like range now, uh, stretching into a little bit of North America. So it was just like a research trying to see, you know, through blood testing, like in Texas State, can we see if there's like, you know, an increase in people having Chagas disease up here? Um, and the groundwork for trying to get it started was translating uh, from this uh, Chilean company that made the testing kits for Chagas, uh, just like an SOP so that we would have something to follow, right? Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a first generation immigrant. I moved from Mexico when I was around 12 years old. Mm -hmm. um, so my first language is Spanish. Spanish has a lot of variations. The Spanish we speak in Mexico isn't the same as the Spanish you speak in like Peru, Argentina or Chile. But mm -hmm. overall, you're usually able to like pick up the pieces and see like what words are, are a little different. So, yeah, my happy like little contribution to that research project was being able to translate that SOP and at least have them like, you know, ready to go with it. Um, but yeah, it was fun. Uh, I think that uh, in the clinical world, uh, at least mm -hmm. in like hospital settings and stuff, like you do learn like the importance of maintaining SOPs and policies. Yeah. Um, and if you, uh, you know, get through the profession far enough and find yourself in like a management or lead role, uh, yeah. you will find yourself needing to figure out how to create them from scratch. Um, so yeah, it was all pertinent experience. I'll carry it all with me for sure. <laughs> Sounds yeah. like uh, muy bueno, senor. Yeah, God forbid, uh, mi nombre is Rodney, right? Um, my, my, my sad, sad gringo Spanish. Um, just let me, let me put some context on that, too. What was really exciting for us is that we, I, I'm a core researcher. I still do research, especially in public health. And this was mm -hmm. kind of a public health project. So it was a huge grant that someone got um, in another program, healthcare administration, but they came to me and asked if we could provide the laboratory component to it. So the, the big picture of this test is that we ultimately, we're actually still working on this project, Mauricio was on the front end of it, is that we look at newborns born in Texas. So every newborn that's born gets a blood spot. Mm -hmm. You may have experienced this with an infant in a hospital. They, they take a blood drop and put it on these cards, and those cards get taken to the Department of Health in Austin, and they run huge panels for all sorts of issues, genetic disorders mm -hmm. and all sorts of things. And they can also uh, work with people like universities to look at research. So what uh, Paula Stigler, uh, who was downstairs, came to me with was, hey, we got this big grant. Uh, we need some laboratory support. Can you can we hire some students? Can you, do you have some faculty that, that can help? So Tom Patterson, one of our professors, myself, started working on that. And then we we ran into this issue right away that that Mauricio talked about was like, well, what do we do with this Chilean, you know, uh, laboratory insert for this kit that was critical? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I immediately went, hey, 
Mauricio, I, you know, I think he's bilingual and he also worked, you know, at the, the bioscience incubator. So he has some knowledge uh, of this. And so Tom and I grabbed him and he was gracious enough to jump in and, and help us um, translate that. And the project continues. Uh, we've got so a couple cool. of students right now working on it. So exciting things. So our, our students do research uh, as well. Uh, and that's another career path. Some do get into research. Oh, yeah. That's so cool. The, the, I, I know, Mauricio, you touched a little bit on how uh, some of the tools at ABI helped set you up for success for CLS program. Can uh, either of you expand on your experience at ABI and how that set, set, helped set you up for success uh, to the rigorous program at CLS? Don't tell yeah. them about the meetings, Mauricio. <laughs> <laughs> the meetings will continue until morale improves. That is absolutely uh, <laughs> That's actually on my office door. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, like I already mentioned, like there were certain uh, instruments and laboratory skills that I think gave me a leg up on some of my classmates as far as like stuff that I was already acquainted with. Mm -hmm. um, and again, like instruments that eventually gave me job opportunities, right? But mm -hmm. I feel like it also kind of accidentally exposed me to concepts that are very pertinent to the program and the field. Uh, for example, and that aren't really that common in biotech, but you still kind of like tangentially run into them. Uh, one of them, for example, is uh, quality control uh, when mm -hmm. it comes to maintaining instruments. Uh, one of my main duties uh, working at ABI was making sure that the instruments were maintained. Uh, and a lot of the maintenance that's involved with it, depending on the instrument, might involve uh, running some sort of QC. Um, I think in the research world and in the biotech world, well, in non-manufacturing biotech roles, uh, QC isn't that much of a forward thing. It's kind of more of an afterthought. Uh, mm -hmm. Whereas in clinical laboratory science, it's like the cornerstone of like, right. before you do anything, like this is what's most important. Yeah. Um, so it gave me like a, again, like kind of like accidental, like I'm trying to set up this instrument. The manual says it needs QC run at least once a week. What is QC, <laughs> you know, type yeah. of deal. Yeah. Oh, they don't um, use it. Don't bother. It's fine. <laughs> and, oh, you'd yeah, be surprised. And, and, and yeah, and I remember like one of my main, like kind of like, oh, like worlds collide moment was like in my first week of CLS program talking about the importance of QC, how deep that topic goes, the science, mm -hmm. the statistics behind it. And yeah, I just felt really cool that like I didn't feel like I was walking in fully blind. Yeah. Yet I felt like, wow, like this thing that I kind of ran into at ABI has so much more depth than I didn't know it had, right? Yeah. So tiny stuff like that. And it applies also to like pipetting and other like, you know, like. I was about to say, I wanted to add the pipetting because I remember yeah. that we had Eliza's that Mauricio was working on a research project for Macromole Tech and it required setting up Eliza's, which if you haven't done an Eliza, it's a lot of pipetting with tiny amounts in the 96 well plate. Yep. And, you know, you're sucking up volumes in eight, you know, it has eight, eight channels, channels yeah. on it. And if, five of them are the right amount and one of them is not like you have to redo it. Now you have a bubble. It's, I mean, it's, it sounds ridiculous, but it's tedious and it's Very a much. skill for sure. Yeah. 
And I remember watching him struggle over it. And I was like, I don't, I did research for 15 years. I don't think I could do that. And then when COVID happened and we were all sitting at home going, oh, I feel like I should be doing something more. And hearing about all the testing backlog, I started thinking like, oh, we should do pipette training for all of the people out there that, you know, maybe they got laid off of their, you know, whatever job, their restaurant job or whatever. And we could use all hands on deck. And could I set up a pipette training in ABI to just get people ready for when that, you know, all these testing places finally get all their reagents and their kits and their pipette tips and their whatever it is that there's Mm -hmm. backlog and set up like just this, you know, million trillion pipetting with a multi-channel pipette. That was like, (laughs) it's hard. Yeah. 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 And not only is it hard, but it's, um, it is so critical. I mean, I, I love Mauricio talking about this because it it's why I, I would love for more ABI and more ACC students that have that practical experience to end up here. And we do get a lot of post back degree people mm-hmm. that come back with biology degrees because they find out, you know, this piece of it. But if you think about that pipetting piece, and so for your audience, if you don't know what pipetting is, and Nancy kind of touched on this, is it's literally the ability to use a device called a pipetter where you depress it. This is manually. There are automated devices, but you depress it. You go into a tube and you pull out, for example, one microliter, uh, which is a very tiny amount. And if you're off 50 percent, which can happen, it's hard to see. So you only get half of a microliter. The QC on that instrument is shot. It's you can't take the result. Right. So, again, I'm coming back to why this is so critical in healthcare. You know, and I, I've been saying this all through the pandemic. So this is, again, me talking about even even at home testing right now, which is really big. Right. My worry, people like me and probably Mauricio know that pre-analytical errors are the most common. So even mm. how people take their nasal swab, are they putting it into this tube? Are they are they doing the timing correct? Right. Is the is the kit expired? Did they look to see if it was, all those things make it? The result is non-existent at that point. But people think a test is a test is a test. Right. No, it is absolutely not. And sometimes we even have to remind people in healthcare uh, that, no, we Hmm. can't take that sample. We can't use that that tube. It's the incorrect tube you draw blood from an infant from. And we have to be the gatekeepers. We are the gatekeepers of quality, if there's any other way to look at it uh, from my standpoint. Makes sense. Okay, I got two final questions. Go ahead, Mauricio. Yeah, the last thing I was going to say to wrap that uh, last points that he was making up was with just, you know, throwing out the figure at the end. I mean, kind of re, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to start over, uh, reiterating the importance of like why we care our results are trustworthy and accurate. At the end of the day, uh, I think around, you correct me if I'm wrong, 70-ish percent of medical decisions right. when it comes to patient health are made based on lab tests. So if the lab tests are erroneous, like it could literally be life threatening. Uh, So that's why we care. That's why we have so many systems in place to make sure that our results are as accurate as possible. And that's why it's so important that we have professionals running these tests that can spot and know whenever results aren't to be trusted. Yeah, absolutely. Just to finish that thought, I'll, I'll leave it back to Dan. But this is the statement I make all the time publicly. Our professionals perform 13 billion tests a year in this wow. country. Two thirds of those, so roughly 70 something percent, are um, 
all the data that most physicians and others use to make medical decisions from cradle to grave. Wow. And so if, if that foundation, uh, that bedrock of healthcare is not there, that error occurs all the way through the chain, right? Yeah. So it's critical yeah. uh, that our professionals are understood and, and, and supported. Awesome. Just can I ask a quick question on it? Just as, now that all the focus in the in the news and everything is on which professions are appreciated and and compensated adequately, and I'm curious as to whether that this field that is what you just described critical. Do you feel that the compensation reflects that? No, I don't think no. it does. I'm sure Mauricio <laughs> would agree. Now it's getting better, but it's getting better yeah. in a weird way, and so this again can get tangential here, but just a quick comment on that. And thank you for bringing it up, Nancy, is that if you compare our, I'm going to compare it as a median salary. So there's all nuances around if you're a doctor or a, uh, an associate degree CLS, but let's look at Mauricio. So kind of a median income for the bachelor's prepared uh, MLS is about 54 to $55,000 uh, a year. Nursing is about 30 plus percent higher than that. And I love nurses. They're absolutely critical to healthcare, but so are we. Yeah. And it's just about identifying that need and finding ways to bring that that critical need up. And at some point, and again, this is it's in a national crisis right now. I've been writing about it and talking about it. Um, it if it reaches a true national crisis, people are going to know real quick how valuable we are because testing will be you know, falling short and mm -hmm. we won't get the data we need to provide that care and that antibiotic and that cancer chemotherapy or whatever you need. So it all starts with us and we continually fight for that, both legislatively and through uh, working with HR departments and things like that. The pandemic has done a weird thing that light hit us, but in a weird way, what it's done is it has helped, but it's usually through traveling. Uh, and so you'll find a shortage, you know, in another state and someone like Mauricio maybe get recruited to go, you know, make a $15,000 sign on bonus to go to Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And he may get a salary bump up to double to what he makes in Austin or something like that. But the more that happens, we don't have more MLSs out there. It's just creating vacuums of seasoned veterans all over the country. And so it's good and it's bad. I call it the free agency effect. Um, they're yanking us away, paying us more but we don't have anybody in the pipeline or, or not enough in the right. pipeline. I wonder if also the visibility, like when you make the comparison of nurses versus um, lab, yeah, I see that in research lab too. It's, it's an invisible career. Like nobody sees you. And so it's easy to just, <clears throat> that know. makes sense. That's right. And that's Can why I, I appreciate what, what we're doing. Yeah. Can I add one small factor also playing into the dynamic you just laid out? Uh, nurses have unions and I think that does make a difference in how our right. profession gets treated, taken for granted, mm -hmm. and ultimately kind of abused by our usual mm -hmm. employers, at least in the healthcare side of things. Mm -hmm. um, I could talk about this topic for yeah. a long amount of time. It's a different, yeah, that's well, a different I, podcast. That's a different, conversation. <laughs> a different podcast. I got two quick questions. I know we're, we're, we're pretty much uh, at the end of our time, but uh, I wanted the audience to, to know uh, a couple of things. Mauricio, doc, Dr. Rodi talked about what he's doing currently, but I don't know that we touched on what your new role is the day of the life. So if you can quickly kind of give us that, and then I got one last question. He doesn't want to talk about that, Dan. Oh, I you don't want to talk about that. That's uh, fine. You put me in the spot. I don't know how to describe it. So we do three main things in my lab. 
at least in my department. Mm -hmm. So we do leukemia lymphoma panels uh, through flow mm -hmm. cytometry to see, for example, sometimes patients present with like a very, very high white blood cell count and the pathologist involved suspects that it might be a leukemia of some sort. Mm -hmm. So to try and see the lineage of it, is it lymphocytic, is it myelogenous, uh, is it something that we can treat right away? You know, a lot of important information is necessary. Sometimes it's very, very important to get the turnaround on that uh, as quick as possible. Um, the second type of testing that we do a lot of that Dr. Rodi actually mentioned earlier is that we do lymphocyte subset testing, uh, usually to monitor, for example, CD4 versus CD8 lymphocyte counts, uh, very pertinent information in the monitoring of HIV patients, for example. Uh, and the third type of testing that we do that isn't really involving flow cytometry, but is part of our department nonetheless, is that we do hemoglobin electrophoresis. So hemoglobin, as you guys already know, is like the molecule in our red blood cells that binds to oxygen and like keeps us alive. Um, a lot of people can have what they call hemoglobinopathies, which is when hemoglobin has like some sort of mutation that alters its shape and might make it dysfunctional. Uh, the most famous of these hemoglobinopathies is hemoglobin S. Uh, the worst presentation of hemoglobin S is sickle cell disease. Uh, and whenever patients have that, like they can have really bad health outcomes. And it's important to monitor their hemoglobin S levels to see if they need to be transfused. So we do that type of testing as well in my department. Can you, can you feel my pride coming through the screen? This is why, this is why. Um, I, that statement alone shows what our degree is about. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. is so detailed and, and significant to healthcare. It One, just makes me super proud. 100%. And for the episode okay. on immunologies, for the explanation of CD4 and CD8, <laughs> we will have um, that yeah. next week. Yes, please. Okay, last That's question because I know we're, I know we're we're like pushing the time limit here. That's okay. Uh, That's for what's needed. Uh, last question I think is super important is is this global question that's always asked is what is your advice for students in high school, community college, or a four year college who are interested in science but don't know how to leverage that career? And I just want to just a snippet from both of you on that. I think um, I'm just going to reiterate what has already been stressed mostly by Nancy and Dr. Rodi. Um, look at careers. Like you can look at as many course listings of you as you want. You can look at like what the courses say, what the major is called. At the end of the day, you need to think about like what your education is going to translate into a job. You mm -hmm. know, uh, I'd say look at that first and foremost do as much career exploration as possible and just like follow what opportunities you think there are. Yeah. And I'll, I'll flip, I, I do, a, you know, I got a ton of literature and, and other things on this that I obviously am passionate about, but when it gets right down to where the rubber hits the road, mm -hmm. it's also incumbent on teachers and counselors and parents yeah. and aunts and uncles and whoever like to to think about this in a way that they might influence and mentor a student, not just at the high school level, but I, I want them to reach down into the junior high level because it's so critical as we just talked about, as you move through that high school level and maybe start at community college or whatever you're doing, you have to be taking care of business. It's selective. 
you can't be a C and D student and end up in my program. And so that's important to understand that you have a good mentor and you have a, now it doesn't mean that somebody can't come in later, they get their life figured out and they come back at 30 years old. Uh, We get those students, but the more direct route is to reach those younger students and show them the critical and interesting jobs that this is. Um, You know, and, and I, I, I tell this all the time. Uh, my wife will kind of joke with me. I hear this because my my own children just got out of college, so they're out there working. And so I was mixing with 16, 17, 18 year olds for months there for a while. And they would sometimes talk to me and they'd say, hey, Dr. Rody, I want to be a pediatric oncologist physician. And, I, and my, head would, my, my eyes would start ticking and my head would start shaking. And I'm thinking, do they know how long and how difficult that path is? And my wife would be like, don't you kill their dreams. You know? oh, and I'm like, dream but killer. they need to know plan B. <laughs> yes, yes. Right. So I'm a big 100%. believer in plan B and C and, and you can get our degree and still become a pediatric oncologist. Right, right. If that's and your goal. Tapping into what your skill set is. I mean, we've had, we're right. doing this whole series on the different students that have been through ABI and showcasing the fact that who they are as human beings and right, the way right. their brain is wired mm-hmm. in, you know, whether they like to touch strangers or whatever that is. Right totally plays into that too. And when you're thinking about careers, don't just think of it as dollars or title or whatever. It's like, you know, do you want to do that thing? Whatever that thing is. Do you want to be happy and help people? And yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm so sorry to wrap up that. um, Yes. Like at the end of the day, you can look at the pay um, and the conversation as to like, you know, what it is like on the field and the trenches is like one thing, but the other side of things is that I love what I do. I feel oh, like I'm using so like what, I, what my best skills are. I use every day. I feel like it is like constantly engaging in an intellectual way. Um, and I could not be happier at least with what it is that I do in the day to day. And that makes the struggles of the profession so much more easy to work with. So any profession is going to have its own struggles. It's Amen. very important that you right. truly love what you do, in my opinion. Well said. We, we've heard that over and over. It's it's that daily challenge that you go in and there's different things and, and it's always pushing the limit. So thank you for, for wrapping that up. I want to thank everybody for being on the podcast today. It was It was so enlightening to hear about the experiences, the needs, the critical uh, aspects of of the biosciences and the CLS program and the need that's out there right now in light of COVID, and that's not going to go away. So uh, again, thank you for both for all of you for being here. Uh, really appreciate the time that you spent with us, and uh, look forward to chatting in the future. Thanks, Thanks so you. It's awesome. Thanks so much for joining Science in the Mall, y'all, Dr. Rody and Mauricio. It was awesome to hear more details about the ways that Austin Community College, Texas State University, ACC Bioscience Incubator, and the CLS program intersect. And we hope that folks listening feel inspired by Mauricio's path to find other creative and productive ways to navigate these great resources in our bioscience community. This is a Foundy Media podcast produced in partnership with Austin Community College's Bioscience Incubator, which is the region's only wet lab space for Austin's growing bioscience industry. If you like what you heard, please like and subscribe and do tell a friend.